Hello, and welcome to the Strategic Podcast from the Hoover Institution, analyzing the intersection of military history and contemporary national security concerns. You can find us online at hoover.org forward slash publications forward slash strategica. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and today we examine the topic of the most recent issue of strategica, should more of America's democratic allies possess nuclear weapons. And I'm joined now by the author of the historical backgrounder in this issue, Joseph Jaffe, the Mark and Anita Abramowitz Fellow in International Relations at the Hoover Institution and a member of Hoover's Military History Working Group. Okay, so the the question in this issue of Strategica, should more of America's allies possess nuclear weapons? As the author of the backgrounder, you're sort of tasked with giving us some historical context for the question. Let's start with the underlying question of why countries develop nuclear weapons. Uh, You make clear in your piece that there's not just one formula for that. In fact, you sort of break it up into several groups of countries. So let's let's start with the first group. You talk about uh, the U.S., Russia at that time, the Soviet Union, France, Britain, and China. What's what's the common thread with that group and their motivations for developing nuclear weapons? Um, I think it's a, it's, it's a, that's an easy one. Uh, I will call it competitive proliferation. The Americans, uh, the U.S. did it because they thought the Germans were doing it. The uh, the Soviets did it because the Americans had it. Uh, the the Brits and the French did it because there's two other great powers had it, and they wanted the great power badge of nuclear weapons. And then, of course, finally China, which explicitly referred to the nuclear hegemony of the of the others, which had to be broken. So these were proliferation choices that were all made indigenous, so to speak. They were not not triggered by a sense of insecurity or neglect on the part of the greater powers or allies. Troy, are you there? Yeah, did you? Yeah, you got cut off. Can you hear me now? Okay. Yeah. Did, did Joe just wrapped up that question? Yes, exactly. Okay. Well, Joe, I'll just take, we'll cut this part out. I'll just take you to the next one. Okay. In three... Two, one. Okay, and the next group that you talk about in your piece, um, a trio, Israel, India, and Pakistan, different set of motivations there. Uh, what go to those countries towards nuclear development? Um, well, they, they engage in something I call asymmetric proliferation in order to uh, equalize the conventional edge held by their neighbors. Um, you know, Israel is the clearest case, you know, it's a very small nation surrounded by 300 million Arabs. Um, the conventional uh, balance of power would eventually tilt against it, so nuclear weapons were the ultimate reinsurance. Um, India, you know, uh, India may have uh, built its nukes uh, against China, which was nuclear, and then Pakistan built its nukes against India, which had gone nuclear. So it's 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 also a kind of competitive proliferation, but different from from the great powers. Uh, these these were nuclear weapons designed to hold off one particular enemy and neighbors, in other words. 
And the final group that you mentioned, uh, again, three, Iran, Iraq, which we sometimes forget about in the modern context because here we're talking about Saddam Hussein's Iraq, and, and North Korea. Um, explain the dynamic at work with those three countries. Well, Iran, we always forget that the source of all our troubles was not Khomeini. It was our good friend, the Shah. He laid the groundwork for um, for, for, for nuclear weapons by trying to acquire a complete fuel cycle, which would eventually take you from uranium to the bomb via breeding, enrichment, reactors, etc. And his, his main target was the age-old foe next door, Iraq. And by the way, Saddam, whatever nuclear um, uh, machinery had begun to, to put into place, that bomb was not targeted on Israel. It was targeted against Iran, uh, with which it had fought the longest and bloodiest war in the Middle East, eight years and maybe a million dead. So in other words, you have all kinds of different, different motivations here, which cannot be um, undone by what is now a very fashionable idea. Somehow, if we disarmed uh, our nuclear, if we reduced or disarmed in, in, in our nuclear panoply, then the good example we set, we, the Americans, the, the West, the Russians, will inspire the others and make them also disarm. That, that is the purpose of that analysis I gave you. These, these nations all had reasons which had nothing to do with the fact that the U.S. or Russia or China had nuclear weapons. They needed them for their security in their own local or regional arena. And since these conflicts will not subside, they will not get rid of their nuclear weapons, no matter how much the United States or Russia disarm. Now, we've talked about these groups of countries that have developed nuclear weapons. Let's talk about the ones that haven't, especially the ones that haven't that very plausibly could have. And there's yeah. three in particular that you focus yeah. in on in, in your piece, Germany, Japan, and South Korea. So a couple of things there. One, you know, explain the factors that kept that from happening. And two, for people who are interested in, in non-proliferation, is there something that has happened with these three countries, some principle that you can extrapolate if you're trying to keep other countries from going nuclear? Well, you know, Germany and Japan are two very special cases. They were the, the great aggressors of World War II, uh, bringing untold suffering to their, to their respective continents. And so uh, the, the, their, their surroundings, so to speak, is enormously or has been enormously sensitive to anything that smacked off nuclear weapons in either Japan or Germany. Um, that was a no-no, and let me say this, the two of them could probably build nuclear weapons, I don't know, in six months if they wanted to. But not only don't do, haven't they done that, but Germany has deproliferated in the sense that it's gotten rid of some of the uh, links in the chain, um, such as uh, fast breeders that breed plutonium, which is one way to the bomb. Um, that is... So these two are very special cases. South Korea, but all of them, now let's put in South Korea, 
all of them had the good fortune of being very tightly protected by the United States. And by that, I don't just mean the way Israel was protected, which was by verbal guarantees, on which you can or may or may not count, but with with boots on the ground. I mean, Germany had about 200,000 GIs on its soil and thousands of nuclear weapons, and similarly South Korea, similarly Japan. So that was a very strong, a very visible security guarantee, which kind of said to the Russians or the Chinese, if you attack us, you attack the United States. So that was a very powerful incentive, plus the the unsavory past that kept Germany and Japan out of the out of the nuclear out of the nuclear race. Let, let me ask you about the corollary to that incentive, because you hear the criticism fairly regularly, including from many members of the, the military history working group at Hoover, mm-hmm. that the Obama administration's pullback from the world stage is leaving a vacuum that other yeah. powers are going to rush in to fill. Now the president has been outspoken about the fact that he wants a fairly dramatic reduction in nuclear weapons. This seems to be one of the few issues where he actually has something of a, a decades-long commitment. Well, um, are those two impulses working at, at cross-purposes? I mean, are we well, more likely to see greater nuclear proliferation partially because yes. the Obama administration know, has reduced that is, its presence? That is the $64 question behind uh, the, the strategic piece and be, behind our conversation. Let me say this. Obama is not... Um, to put it in a, in a very friendly manner, he's not a unidimensional uni guy. So he's been spouting the, the zero, um, um, zero nuclear weapons option, but at the same time he asked Congress for $70 billion for the modernization of America's nuclear arsenal. So there is a, a bit of double, double talking. But the question is right. It is quite clear that the United States is retracting from its commitments. So the 300,000 U.S. troops in in Europe at the height of the Cold War have dwindled to about 30,000. They're no longer able to kind of have to to fulfill a military mission. Um, Now, so the question now is, what about somebody like, like Germany? What about somebody like Japan? who are facing a, let's, let's say, a narrower American umbrella. And my argument would be Germany, no way, because there's another variable in the game, enormous nuclear allergy in, in Germany, not just against military uh, nuclear, nuclear stuff, but against civilian nuclear power. This is the first country in the world, I think, that will get rid of all of its nuclear power reactors in response to this enormous allergy. The Japanese have the same kind of nuclear allergy, but not as bad because they're not getting rid of their reactors even after Fukushima. And I would still argue they won't do it because, look, the preparation, I mean, the way to nukes will alienate a hell of a lot of other nations in the area and might even provoke the Chinese at the kind of preemptive move. So my my strong hunch is that, that the Japanese will continue what they're doing, which is 
pretty rapid clip of rearmament. Uh, I think the Japanese now have the fourth largest navy, the third largest navy in the world, uh, but they will not go nuclear. The risks of doing so are just too high. And I think the same probably goes for South Korea. Um, but South Korea is a nation that is sitting on the fence. So if, if, if push comes to shove, they may, might appease China uh, rather than, than set up uh, a, a worthy kind of military panoply. Final question, Joe, and, and one I'm putting to everybody that we're talking to about this issue. We are coming up on 70 years since the use of nuclear weapons in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and you could be forgiven if, if you lived during that era uh, for being surprised that we've gotten 70 years down the road without it ever occurring again. How confident are you that looking forward another 70 years we'll be able to say the same thing again? This is a very speculative, speculative answer, but nonetheless not pull, pulled out of thin, thin air. I think nothing that I've seen so far has in any way diminished the nuclear taboo. Uh, look, if I really wanted to have a military option against Iranian nuclear weapons, I would go at least in some place like Florida, which is protected by, you know, 60 feet, uh, about 60 meters of rock. That can only be, 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 be taken out with a small nuclear device. But we are not even thinking about it. Uh, so that, to me, suggests the enormity, the continuing enormity of the nuclear taboo. Uh, it is truly the weapon of last resort. That is, it will be employed only in the ultimate case of you know, protecting the existence of one's nation. Our guest has been Joseph Jaffe, Mark and Anita Abramowitz Fellow in International Relations at the Hoover Institution and a member of Hoover's Military History Working Group. You can read his piece and those by other members of Hoover's Working Group by visiting Strategica at hoover.org forward slash publications forward slash Strategica. That's S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-K-A. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.